I'm Jeff Cohen. Barbara Irwin has come a long way in her Jewish observance, but as a young child, she didn't keep Shabbos and didn't know about many other Jewish practices. In fact, her earliest exposures to Jewish observance almost pushed her further off the path. But let's hear her story now. Barbara, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Well, thank you, Jeff. Looking forward. And for full disclosure, I will tell our listeners that Barbara and I actually know each other because we live in the same town, but we've never sat down for an hour and given me a chance to hear your life story, so I'm pretty excited about this. That's true. And by the way, I would tell our listeners also, if you have someone you know really well, but you just have them for meals and you just have like regular banter, but you never had the chance to just for one full hour fire questions at them about their life story, I encourage you to do it because I know I'm going to learn things about you that I never heard before. Uh Uh-oh. I'm a little nervous about this, but go for it. As with all of our guests, we like to start at the beginning, just in terms of where you were born and raised, so we get some context of where your story starts. I actually was born in Brooklyn, but we moved in my first year to Emerson, New Jersey. It's a small town in Bergen County. My parents moved there because my aunt and uncle lived across the street. I was told that my grandmother, I said to them, why are you moving away from Brooklyn? Because she couldn't imagine anybody living anywhere that wasn't Brooklyn. But they had a nice life there and started the conservative shul. And that's where my life began, Emerson, New Jersey. Okay. And tell me a little more about your parents' background religiously, like how they were raised and how that might have informed the kind of family they set up for you. I mean, my mother brought up in a conservative home. Her parents were from Europe, actually from pretty religious homes in Europe. But when they came here, they basically were following what a lot of the immigrants did, which was try to fit in. My grandfather did work on Shabbos because he had a grocery store. So for sure, he was open on Shabbos. My father actually grew up in a very irreligious home. They did not keep anything. He knew he was Jewish, but there was nothing that went on that was of a religious nature. He never got bar mitzvahed, but I guess he knew a little bit just because being in Brooklyn and hanging out with all the other kids in Brooklyn, he knew there was another life, but that wasn't for him at the time. Okay, so now we're in Emerson and you're a young child, and what kind of things are going on in the home from a Jewish perspective? Well, when my parents started the home in Emerson, My father insisted that the home be kosher, even though that was not something he grew up with, because he wanted my mother's parents to be comfortable in their home when they came to visit. And in terms of the Jewish community there, there were a number of people that were very similar to them. And they started a shul, the Emerson Jewish Center, that really met their needs. And... Basically, Friday night was when they all went to services. It was very much social. That was their group. My mother lit candles Friday night, and my father said Kiddush, which really was just the bracha. Uh, At that point, he didn't know how to read Hebrew. So he really was trying, and they became much more uh, associated with the Jewish religion, culturally, I'd say, more than anything else. How did your father, by the way, know how to keep a kosher home? Like you said, he grew up with not much religion. He knew he was Jewish. How did he even know what he was doing? And was it at the level of like what an Orthodox person would be doing in terms of koshering their kitchen? Or or maybe just what he felt like separating milk and meat and maybe two sets of dishes? What was he doing? I think he was familiar with it just from going to my grandparents' home and seeing what they did there. And it was basically only buying kosher meat and two sets of dishes 
at that point. I think people weren't looking for OU and Chafke. It was basically reading the ingredients. And if it said vegetable shortening, then that was considered okay. And um, he learned. My father was always a willing learner. Okay. And you got to go to Hebrew school also? Was that like two or three times a week? What, what was it like? It was three times a week, Sunday and two afternoons after school. I really took to it. I really enjoyed it. What'd you like about it? I like any kind of intellectual challenge. And it definitely was that. Actually, the funny part, which I didn't think about till right now, is that the rabbi that this conservative shul hired was an Orthodox rabbi. I don't know how he survived in that community because there was nobody else like him. But I think I just found the things he said interesting. It's what it drew me to wanting to know more. Was he ever saying to you, like, there's different levels, like, okay, you're all conservative, I'm orthodox, have you ever thought about taking on more? Was there any kind of, like, cure of element to what he was doing, or he just accepted he was among conservative Jews? He very much just accepted us. There was no Kiruv. Mm -hmm. I think probably if he had tried, he probably wouldn't have kept his job because he was hired specifically for that community and he knew what he was getting. And then did the the Hebrew school experience culminate in a traditional bat mitzvah for you? I actually did not have a bat mitzvah. In our community, there were no bat mitzvahs. I'm not sure why, but... Maybe it was the time. I don't know if other people had bat mitzvahs, but really nobody that I knew had a bat mitzvah. It's so interesting because my friends going through Hebrew school, and admittedly not not that many of them loved it the way you're describing it, but they certainly saw there was this big party and event at the end of seventh grade, eighth grade, depending on how old they were. And that was enough to like keep them engaged and wanting to have that big celebration. But you didn't have that at the end of the, the Hebrew school run. No, the, the boys had it for the bar mitzvah. And Jeff, you are younger than I am, so I don't know, maybe things changed. But <laughs> what, at my time, girls did not have bat mitzvahs at all. So then another part of the, the childhood experience for a conservative Jew is often going to day camps, but that can be a secular camp or something that has a religious flair to it. So did you get a camp experience also? Yes, and that basically is sort of what framed the rest of my life. My parents wanted me to go to day camp, and they wanted it to be a kosher camp. So... The first day we were there, we went for a meal, and I walked up to the dining hall, and there was this long metal trough, and I'm thinking, oh, they must have horses here. <laughs> I, I knew nothing from washing. I knew nothing from benching. I knew, I knew none of this, and I really started from as ground zero as one could because I just knew nothing about any of those things. But it was beautiful. I mean, Shabbat was nice. I'd learned that you had Zemirot, which I never knew existed before. And um, it was a special day. But I also was in some ways afraid of the day because I didn't know all the rules. And a lot of it was what you couldn't do. I remember a whole discussion about pickup sticks and whether one could play pickup sticks because you were separating. Or, And if you know absolutely nothing about Shabbat, it was really very overwhelming. But I did love the people that I went to camp with. And I did go for four years specifically to that camp and then switch to a different camp. So before we get to the camp you switched to, the first place you're at, it sounds like most of the kids had been raised observant, like from from birth kind of kids, or was it a mix of Orthodox and conservative kids? They were all from, from birth, except for me. Literally the only one, as far as you knew. I was the only one. Yeah. And so you said you had four summers there. Did that change anything you felt about like where you were holding religiously as a Jew? Or were you outside of camp when you went back to Emerson and you're back in school, just going on exactly the same as you had before you went to that camp? Oh, it definitely 
had me question things. It didn't have me think about so many changes in my life. Although I remember somebody at some point in camp talking about people who didn't keep kosher outside of their home. And then how did they think they were kosher? Because if sometimes food went in that was and sometimes wasn't, I mean, at that point, we would go out to diners and eat anywhere and um, eat almost anything out. Never shellfish, never ham. That was like so funny, but any other meat was acceptable. And it did make me start questioning. And I think at that point, I stopped eating any meat outside when we went out to eat with my family. Isn't that funny when you're a young kid, you just accept that I have a kosher home, but I eat non-kosher out and it's like perfectly fine. That's just what my family does. And you have to be like a little older to start saying, wait, what exactly is going on here? <laughs> <laughs> that is so true. It's really very funny because at the time it just seemed normal. That's what everybody I knew did. Actually, that's not true. Most of the people didn't even have kosher homes. So, but for those who had kosher homes, yeah, it seemed like a normal thing to do. All right. So then you said just before that you switched camps at some point after four summers at one camp. And I'm guessing by the context you're setting that the second camp had a different impact on you from a Jewish perspective. So what, what happened? So it definitely was. I ended up going to Hebrew high school and there was a teacher that I had there who recommended this other camp, which was Camp Ramah. At the time, a name I was not at all familiar with. I really liked him as a teacher. And I said, you know what, I want to try this other camp. And it was a completely different experience for me. It, at that point, Camp Ramah was definitely a little more from and definitely was Shomer Shabbat. And I love Shabbat there. I think the focus there was on Judaism, enhancing your life and being beautiful and not in terms of a list of no's of what you can't do. You spent all day Friday getting ready for Shabbat and decorating and and Shabbat itself was beautiful, just a beautiful experience. And it made me want to become Shomer Shabbat. But you actually said something in the beginning of that answer that you went to, did you say a Hebrew high school? Like, were you in public school through middle school and then you made a change and you were now in a school that had a Judaic program? Or what am I missing here? No, no, it was a Talmud Torah, but it was a continued in high school. It continued through. So it was not a day school. Okay, so like a lot of kids that are conservative, once they hit that bar mitzvah age, like that's the end of the line. So I guess in the decision with your family, you chose to continue Hebrew school beyond those years through high school is what you're saying? Yes, I really wanted to continue. And it wasn't in our synagogue, but in the synagogue in the next town. And my parents were willing to drive me there. And they were very supportive of any changes I wanted to make. So that really made a big difference for me. And so saying that Shabbos was impacting you in a different way in the second camp, like you're seeing the beauty of it as opposed to the restrictive nature of it, now is this the point where you start coming back to your family and being like, not only am I loving this, but I think I want to incorporate some of this into how I'm living my life back at home too? Very much so. I did come home and I talked to my parents, uh, probably not after the first or second summer, I, I, maybe after the second summer, I started thinking about it. And I talked to my parents about it. They, and they did have reasonable questions. If we went to visit family on Saturday, you wouldn't be able to go with us to see grandma and grandpa. We, you know, would that, how would you feel about that if we left you? And my mother's suggestion at that point was she said, this is something that's important to you, but I'm thinking it might be easier for you to do it when you're on your own. In a couple of years, you'll be going to college and it might be easier for you to start then. We'll support you with whatever you want to do within the home, but maybe doing the absolute break makes more sense then. 
And that's what I did. That's interesting because a lot of times if a parent gives a teenager advice like that, then they do the opposite of what the parent says because you're at that rebellious stage. But it sounds like you thought this was sound advice. It seemed like sound advice. At that at that point, really, my friends and my life more were camp. I don't know if you went to day camp, but often people who go to day camp sort of live from summer to summer. And during the year, it's sort of like, what am I doing? And most of my friends really were my camp friends, and I kept very closely in touch with them. I didn't feel like I actually belonged so much in high school. I had a few friends, but at that point, it was either you were... Um, a jock or you were into drugs and I mean this was the 70s and I didn't really feel like I belonged so much I was very very close with my mother and she really understood me and was always very supportive they did support me when I wanted to my senior year of high school do a kibbutz ulpan program for six months in Israel my parents were very Zionistic they went to Israel every summer so it sort of was, a, a, I think, a growth process for all of us. Hmm. So take me through now these last couple of years of high school, because you've learned all these things that you're taking on, or that you want to take on, but you're going to kind of hit the pause button. And so like, I have these things I learned, I'm going to put them on a shelf for 24 months from now, basically. And you go back to sort of just living your life, knowing this is something I'm going to probably explore when I get to college. Is that like your thought process at that point? Pretty much so. I probably were certain things I took on. Um, I definitely weren't, I was not writing on Shabbat. I definitely would go in a car with my family somewhere, but it wasn't like I would get into the car and drive somewhere. So I think I was slowly moving that way. I felt it would be a big break for my family if I totally went Shomer Shabbat, which I did once I hit college. I did it right away. But prior to going to college, you have six months in Israel? I had six months in Israel. So that could have been a time you explore becoming Shomer Shabbos. Is that when you did it or you stayed kind of the version of yourself you were when you when you left? I think I was moving that way. It was a Ramah program. So we had our own little group, but it was in a kibbutz that was not that tea. So I think that sort of made it that I wasn't being, I mean, if I was on a Dati Kibbutz, I'm sure I would have been at that point, totally Shomer Shabbat. So I don't think I was totally Shomer Shabbat at that point. It was moving that way. It was really more gradual than just saying, this is it, I'm done, I'm going to be Shomer Shabbat. It's interesting you just said that because I'm thinking that when you're going to college, that's like a moment that people can hit a reset button, right? You're meeting all these new people and you can change your persona. So you could have gone into college and just say, I'm a religious person. And just even though they don't know it's your first day doing it, that could have just been how you present yourself. So where, where did you go to school and how were you carrying yourself religiously? Like, how did you present yourself when you got there? I went to Douglas at Rutgers. And at that point, I had a few friends from Ramah who were like me, a little more from, that also went to Douglas. One good friend, especially. And she also was moving towards being Shomer Shabbat. We ended up being roommates together. We were able to do this together, which I think really helped us. And there was a rabbi, not at the Hillel, but in town in New Brunswick, that I used to go to for questions, just because I just felt there was so much that I did not know. I was just going to ask you that, because if you have friends who are all like at the same level of starting out, you need some kind of guide or mentor, like you can't figure all this stuff out on your own. Like I've interviewed enough people that there's always someone who's playing the role of explaining to you what to do as you start growing. So you, you got connected to a rabbi in New Brunswick who became kind of the guide as you took on more? Well, 
I also met Gil my freshman year. He was a sophomore, my, hus my husband, who actually went to JEC. So we actually knew a lot of the same people um, in a different way. He is Shomer Shabbat and went to a from school. And he also was a guide for me. So where did he grow up? Just give us a little more context about his background. He grew up in Passaic, but Passaic before it was Passaic. So his family was more cultural, even though they all went to AFJC or Berea, they were a little bit more flexible in the house. His parents were not Shomer Shabbat, but there definitely was the benching and Shabbat was benching and washing and all of that because that's what the kids, I guess, learned in school. But um, it was a very mixed family. It was Gil's mother had married Gil's father. And so putting together two families also made it a little like accommodating for both. At that point in Passaic, he went to day school and his day school, which is Hilla, which now is huge. I think he had a graduating class of maybe 14. The class used to go visit his family's sukkah because it was like the only sukkah in all of Passaic, which at this point <laughs> is pretty funny. Right. So he grew up understanding, I think, people who don't really know everything, who don't necessarily follow everything. But he, at that point, already had decided to be Shomer Shabbat um, as a child. So I would say half of the kids in his family were and half weren't. And he was a guide for me. It sounds like you're a good match in terms of you both are coming now from families where there's a lot of people who are not and you can connect on that level, right? Absolutely true. And I think it's also was interesting for our children to grow up that way, to see that there were other people who are Jewish, but not necessarily hold the same thing that they do. Fairlawn is a wonderful community. And I think it's very accepting of people who are different, but most of the people they knew were Shomer Shabbat, and all of a sudden they could see that they were cousins and aunts and uncles and grandparents that weren't. And I think in some ways that was very eye-opening and helpful for them in terms of becoming strong in terms of what they believed in. Right. It's a balancing act because you're trying to protect your kids and raise them in a certain way, but you also want them to know there's other levels of Judaism and there's a world out there, and you don't want them to be like so insular that they don't understand this. Right. I don't want them to see somebody driving on Shabbat and say, oh, they must not be Jewish because not necessarily true. <laughs> right. By the way, when someone tells me they see someone in our community like not doing something like perfectly right, I say that person is doing more than 99% of the people that I grew up with. So let's give them a little break. <laughs> Absolutely. A lot of the people in our community really are from from birth. And I'm not sure they give enough credit to those people who choose the life because we do give up a lot in terms of doing this. I mean, we gain a lot or otherwise, I guess we wouldn't have done it. But at the same time, it is a choice for us. We've accepted it and we don't take it for granted. So now take me back to the college years because you mentioned that you met Gil there, which I didn't even know. I know both of you and I didn't realize when you met. So this is what, like freshman, sophomore year of college? When do you meet each other? Uh, my freshman year, his sophomore year. Okay. And how do your paths cross? Uh, through Hillel. There was a Hillel eating club and basically every night of the week and Shabbat, we all ate together at Hillel. It was a group of us and we hit it off. Actually, we started off as really good friends, which was really nice. And um, 
we just were very comfortable with each other. We enjoyed spending time together and we enjoyed a lot of the same things. So I remember for one of my art classes, I had to go to art galleries in the city and he said, I'll take you. And it, it's just feeling very comfortable. Oh, he said he would take you, but he also was probably starting to like you as more than a friend. So there may have been another agenda there. True enough. True <laughs> enough. Although he does like art galleries, so who knows? <laughs> I'm going to have to ask him that later if that's true or if that was Fair part enough. of the courtship. Fair enough. Okay. So then as you're going from friends to becoming the possibility of a relationship there, are you having discussions about where you're holding religiously and what it might mean if you become a couple and, and move towards marriage? Well, I don't think we ever really had that conversation because at that point, we both were Shomer Shabbat. We both sort of were following very similar ways of approaching Shabbat. And we both knew our families definitely were not there, but that was okay. We both knew what that was like. And so what was the family reactions to the two of you meeting each other? Because you could have met someone who wasn't religious and just you hit it off with them and decided maybe this is the path I'm going to go. But now that you're connected to someone who's at a similar level, it's probably becoming very real for both families that being religious is going to stick and this is going to likely be a way of life for you. So for my parents, they just wanted me to be happy. And for my mother, the first time Gil came to our house to pick me up for a date and he got out and opened the door. I mean, my mother, <laughs> until the day she died, still talked about that, that she knew he was such a gentleman because he opened the door for me. And so she just loved him. She loved him the whole time. She really saw all the good in him and was very happy for me that I found him. Gil's family, at one point, his Mother said to me, if you guys get married and you get divorced, you can come and live with me. We just were very, we were very close. We were very close. So it just was always a comfort level that we both had with both families. Okay, so where along this path of, of dating does marriage come into the picture? Do you wait till you graduate or you're, you're sophomore in college and you get married? No, I waited till, I, well, I graduated a half year early, but we got married that the June of the year I graduated. And what were you studying? What did you want to do career-wise? What did he want to do? I was a psychology and art major. I thought I wanted to be an art therapist, but I ended up going into human resources because I thought it'd be a more practical job. And Gil was business. So he was, at that point when we got married, he was in his second year of Columbia Business School. And I went to Teachers College for my master's in human resources. And we lived in that area for a year. Right. But given the interviews coming from Fairlawn, there must have been another move after where you started out. Yes. The first move that we had after Columbia was going out to Forest Hills. And I know a lot of the people, even from Fairlawn, went to Forest Hills Jewish Center. But Gil and I went to a smaller shul that was there. We lived there for three years. It was very convenient. We both worked on the east side, so it was easy to go by train. And then uh, when I was pregnant, we decided... We had to figure out where to move, and we were looking for a community that was on a train line so that we could get into the city. And we looked at a few communities, and when we got to Fairlawn, and I don't even know how we knew about Fairlawn. I didn't know anybody who lived there. And we saw the shul, and we walked in, and then we walked up the stairs. And at that point, that's Rabbi and Chevy lived in the shul, and we were in the living room. And it was, I was like, this is home. This is a great place to be. And they were very welcoming. Uh, we came and we tried it and we liked it. And we bought a home without knowing anybody here. There were very few people our age at that point. And 
we've been living here now for 40 years. And you've really seen the growth of Fairlawn and the growth of Shomri Torah then if you came here at a time when the shul was still in Rabbi Yudin's house. That is true. For those of our listeners who don't know Fairlawn, the shul started in Rabbi and Chevy's house and then they bought the property across the street that became a, you know, a big shul with 300 families. So what do you remember from that growth? Well, from when we decided we're moving to Fairlawn and we looked for a house until we actually bought and moved in, at that point, the building across the street was built. So um, we never davened in their house, but it was still one building in some ways, going from Rabbi and Chevy to the shul. It was very close community at that point. It was much smaller. Uh, I'd say there were maybe three or four other couples our age. That was it. But everybody was very friendly with each other, and everybody worked together on everything. And Rabbi and Chevy were amazing examples of how to incorporate the shul in your life. And then you also mentioned that you would start having kids. So what were you telling them as they were growing up about how you were raised versus how Gil was raised and the choices you were making and how you were running your family? I don't think we ever had a real conversation about it. I think they all just saw what was going on and there were lots of cousins. I mean, my sister has the two boys and one of them actually um, is Shomer Shabbat. One of them is not Shomer Shabbat, but their kids actually go to day school. So our family really kept very much having Judaism close and important to them. So I think if there was no important aspects of Judaism, that would have had to be a different explanation. Gil's family, he and his five brothers and sisters all had children who went to yeshiva. It was sort of, everybody was living very similar lives to what they were living. And I'm thinking about the the way you and I have in common that we have family that's not religious. What I started to do with my my own parents and my sibling was say, let's not have everything revolve around food. Like you don't realize when you're secular, like so many get-togethers are about food. And I said, that's where sometimes it gets complicated. We can do other things. So now like I play golf with my father because that's like a perfect thing to do where religion is not a piece of it and we can spend quality time together. I'm wondering if you had any experiences in how you shifted some of these things you did with extended family when you're at different levels of observance? Okay, so the first thing is I'm trying to think, what are you talking about? Because somehow in religious life, everything revolves around food, it feels like half the time. So I don't know that. <laughs> I haven't moved away from that. Um, my parents would drive to us for a Shabbat meal, and that's what grandma and grandpa did. We always had other family activities. We'd go away together. Uh, we'd spend weekends together. The weekends, Gil's family generally were all Shomer Shabbat kinds of weekends at that point, since there was such a mixture where they went towards the Shomer Shabbat part. And everybody just followed along. It was never really a question of how to incorporate people who were less religious in our lives. They just were. When you're in shul or around other people who were raised fully observant, do you feel like officially part of the club now, or do you still feel at all like an outsider or someone who wasn't raised with it? And I'm, I'm asking you that question because it comes up for me all the time in the davening because I just cannot go at the pace that the davening happens. And so either I'm doing some things in Hebrew, some things in English, some things transliterated. What is that piece like for you after all these years of being observant, but not coming from it? No, I don't feel I'm at the level of everybody else because there are lots of terms that people will use and I'll be sitting there going, I don't know what the hell they're talking about. But, <laughs> and there are other people in our community who right now really are from, I mean, I don't 
want to necessarily use names, but I might be sitting next to them and their heads covered and they also were not firm from birth. And we look at each other saying, what the hell are they saying? Uh, so <laughs> no, I, I actually still do feel that way. I'd say less so. I definitely do, you know, shiurim and I may do once a week now. I used to do once a week with Rabbi Yudin. But it's still this, I think, comfort level that you never actually reach where it just comes second nature to you. I don't think I have that. I'm not sure I ever will, but it's okay. I accept it. I want to ask you one last question to wrap this up before we close with our, our lightning round. Knowing what you know now, what, what would you tell that girl at camp who walked up to the washing station thinking this is for horses to drink like and viewing Shabbos as restrictive and all that stuff, that, that negative feeling you had, what advice or what would you have said to that person if you could talk to her at that point? Wow. I would say there's always room to learn and to change and to accept what you want to accept and to question what you want to question. And I think I've always been, I'm definitely a lifelong learner. I mean, you know, I definitely have secularly gone through getting a master's and then getting a certification for four years and then getting my doctorate. So I think the same way that secularly, I'm always wanting to learn from wise, I always wanted to learn. And I'm not sure there's really a difference. It's just that it wasn't as easy to learn, but I try. I always tried. And I think I would tell the person, just keep on trying and you'll make mistakes, but that's okay. You'll learn from your mistakes and you'll keep on going. All right. So let's jump to the lightning round. Go take a sip of coffee because these are some rapid fire questions. Now go for it. I'm ready. I'm ready. (laughs) Okay. Is there a book that you came across when you were starting to become religious that helped inform your path that you might recommend to other people who are listening to this podcast and saying, Wow, Barbara's really inspiring me. I think I want to, you know, go on a journey myself. What, what's a book or an author or someone you might recommend? I'm not sure it's something I could recommend. Something I would say I don't recommend is I remember at the time I bought the Shulchan Aruch and I tried to read through it and I was totally overwhelmed by how many things you had to worry about and think about. And I, I think that wasn't the best approach to go with the details first. So I would say find yourself a good mentor and that's really the best way to go. All right. So question two. What advice would you give to someone who's from from birth when they're interacting with someone who doesn't have the same background that can make them connect and have like the most positive relationship? Oh, I would say, I was going to say to have patience, but I think it's more than patience. And I'm not sure because there've been a number of times where I felt that I came across people who looked down on people who were, let's say, conservative. And I feel that being Jewish is not the easiest thing, especially in this days of anti-Semitism and people that want to be Jewish and observe it however they're comfortable, I think should be accepted at that level. And if they are accepted and see how much you enjoy your life, then it's possible that they would be more interested than to be treated as if they're not really being Jewish. And so last question, I mentioned at the top of the interview that we both live in Fairlawn, which means there's the possibility of a future Shabbos invite. So if I'm at the Irwin table, what's the signature Shabbos dish? Something that you hadn't had before. I just want you to know that I used to keep a record of when people came of what they ate and what they liked. (laughs) And, but then I also wanted to do something new. And one of my friends finally said, I don't want to tell you like what things I like because then you always want to do new things. I want to just not tell you anything because sometimes I want you to repeat the things I liked and not always surprise me with something new. So I would say it would be something you hadn't had before. And definitely a good dessert. I'm always into a good dessert. 
Okay. Do you have a special dessert you make, like your uh, special of the house? A chocolate peanut butter tort. Sounds yummy. Okay. If you like peanut butter, it does. <laughs> Otherwise, you can go almond butter for those who are allergic. There you go. All right. So that is a good one to end on. And Barbara, you are out of the lightning round. And I want to thank you so much for joining me on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for doing this as well. I think it's important for people to hear. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit TachlisMedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard, or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at TachlisMedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.